From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. January 22nd marks the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court case that codified the right to an abortion. But this year, on January 22nd, we'll largely remember this anniversary as the one that wasn't. For 49 years, Roe helped to allow people who could become pregnant decide what was best for them and their families. But on June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Since then, bans on abortion have taken effect in 13 states, and courts have blocked abortion bans in nine others, according to the New York Times abortion ban tracker, though this number is constantly changing. On this anniversary episode, we're going to look at the reality that people are facing in a post-Roe America, both those seeking care and those providing it. Without Roe, a key component of reproductive care has become illegal or restricted for more than 20 million people, throwing many into painful and life-threatening situations. We are joined by community organizer at the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice, Keelan Joshua, who experienced firsthand how new restrictions on abortion endanger the lives and well-being of pregnant people. And Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, an OBGYN, reproductive health educator, author, and executive director of Mayday Health, an organization focused on providing information on abortion access and options for people, regardless of where they live. Caitlin, Dr. Lincoln, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Caitlin, I want to start with you. You have worked in community organizing and currently work at the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice, which is an organization fighting for the people of Louisiana. Now, on the books in Louisiana, we have a ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. I want to start asking about your day job, about your work at the Power Coalition. I know that you all are involved in voting and in a lot of other issue areas. Has Roe been an area that you focused on through your work? So up until this point, um, the Power Coalition has pretty much left reproductive justice work and abortion work, abortion rights, women's rights. Um, in the hands of one of our key partners. We have several different key partners that work specifically on reproductive justice, but because this was such a huge moment and such a huge decision that we knew would impact women of color more than anything, um, we've kind of been kind of drawn into that conversation. The role in organizing is you always let um, the issues of the community dictate what you work on. Um, and even though I haven't necessarily like put it in my you know broad stroke of expertise just yet. I do know just with this upcoming legislative session where there really is an opportunity to kind of get rid of that gray area in the state of Louisiana, or at least start the possibility of getting rid of that gray area as it relates to the abortion ban in our state. I do know that that's something that is going to be a priority for the power coalition. Obviously, I knew as a woman of color that such a decision um, such as Dobbs being overturned was major and was going to be impactful in a lot of ways. I never thought I'd, you know, find myself in a situation that was so relative to that conversation and just seeing that play out firsthand with, you know, my husband and I experiencing um, what we experienced back in September. I'm feeling like I'm being led in a different direction in terms of the work that I do um, and what matters most to me. And to me, priority has to be maternal health care in the state of Louisiana. Yeah, I imagine for a lot of us, our work has changed. And I think Dr. Lincoln, 
You've been an OBGYN for more than a decade, but your job has also really evolved and expanded in the past year. How you see your role as a medical professional, knowing that you were already involved in reproductive health care, but now it's the whole landscape is different. Yeah, I totally agree. And I do want to echo exactly what Caitlin said, that sometimes you just happen to be in a moment and it becomes very clear where you need to go. And, you know, I've, I'm, I'm lucky I live in a state that has very progressive rights when it comes to reproductive health care. I'm in the state of Oregon. And up until really a year ago, this wasn't on my radar as much as I now retrospectively realize it should have been. So I do a lot of social media, reproductive health education on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, elsewhere. And I've always covered all sorts of things. And just like Caitlin said, I would kind of see what would swell up. And I'd say, oh, we need to talk about this right now. Or this is the thing that's going crazy on TikTok. And when we saw the Dobbs leak come out, that's when I thought, oh my goodness, this is happening. And so I really prepared for that. And then the day that it fell, I will say that, of course, I still care about all reproductive health care topics, periods, birth control, sex, all those things. But this has absolutely taken the forefront and it's changed my really my trajectory of my of my job now being involved with a nonprofit where this is this is what we do. This is the moment and this is what people need. And it highlights that this is something that might feel very new and is of course much worse than it's been. But we have seen marginalized people and people who've not been able to get this sort of care for a long time. And so um, what we did didn't work. We should have been doing a lot of this sooner and now we really need to double down and get the job done. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Caitlin, you mentioned a bit earlier that you had a firsthand experience of how dangerous this kind of confusion and chaos around getting just healthcare can be. You know, you generously shared some of your story with a recent miscarriage with NPR. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of that story with our listeners who might not have seen that article. So essentially, um, husband and I, we're, we've been planning baby number two for quite some time, and we're really excited um, to be able to you know, get ready and to bring another uh, bundle of joy in the world. I have a four-year-old little girl named Lauren, um, and so we just kind of felt like the timing was perfect. Right around the eight-week mark, I reached out to get an appointment, just like I did with my daughter. I think I saw my first ob right around the five-week mark, which you know, at the time was like, you didn't even realize it was a luxury. Um, but essentially, you know, they did the typical, like, you know, check on baby, um, ultrasound if you're far along enough, et cetera. But this time was a little different. I just really wanted a woman of color. And so I um, had researched um, um, this specific ob at Women's Hospital and tried to get an appointment with her, couldn't get it, was told that I had to be 12 weeks. And I was like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and usually like physicians are so kind around here to be able to just see you when you find out you're pregnant. That's how I found about my little girl. And so, um, I was told that I could not get the appointment until 12 weeks, um, went to a different hospital and said, Hey, I really want an appointment. Like maybe that's just their policy. What's y'all's. And essentially like both facilities said, you know, like most women miscarry in that 12 week mark, zero to three month mark. Um, we can't be liable for that. And so you're just going to have to wait till the 12 weeks, um, straight up just like that. So right around the 10 week mark, um, right after my little girl's fourth birthday party was experiencing some miscarriage symptoms, kind of freaked out. Um, went to the ER at Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge. Um, of course, like they saw me for a good hour, did vitals, et cetera, noticed my ACG levels, 
um, the pregnancy hormone, which is kind of declining, but would not confirm that it was a miscarriage or not. Just would not. Um, one of the nurses there literally sent me home just saying, I'm sending you home with prayers. Um, I mean, I'm a Christian woman. I was insulted by someone telling me that. Like, that's not what you want to hear. You just want confirmation of if you're having a miscarriage or not. But she just wouldn't have the conversation. So um, went to a different hospital. Um, the next day, the cramping, the bleeding, all of that got extremely worse, was passing tissue at this point. So I knew it was something serious. Um, and same thing, except for this time, I brought my husband and my mom and both of them kind of just like pushed the issue of like, just tell us if it's a miscarriage, let us know. And after about a couple hours, I mean, one of the physicians that saw me there was just like, are you sure you were ever pregnant? This just looks like a cyst. So it was like really gaslighting rhetoric that was going back and forth. And so my mom was finally like, okay, just discharge her, give us papers, let us know what to do. And it was you can get your medical records, you know, it'll give you the full download, but we're just going to kind of give you like the basic potential miscarriage, but no confirmation. And so a couple of days went by, the um, symptoms just got worse. And so I finally ended up at a local facility auctioner and one of the midwives there saw me. She was amazing. I'm forever grateful to her. And she confirmed that I was having a miscarriage like days later. Um, and I just thought like in that moment, like how many women are going through this crap, but then above all, like how many women of color are experiencing this and how many, you know, quite frankly, how many white women are not. And so I just, I couldn't fathom this idea that they're treating everybody like this. And it, I just can't help but think like how many lives do we have are going to be lost as a result of folks just being turned away because, and I don't blame them, medical physicians. Um, folks that work within the, med- the healthcare system in Louisiana, they're afraid. They don't want to have that conversation with patients and they don't want to be held liable for invest- investigation. And so that happened back in September. And ever since then, we, we've done our work to kind of process it and kind of just bring awareness to this, what is the consequence of having an abortion ban in Louisiana. Well, I, I just have to say that I'm so sorry that that happened, Caitlin, and that you deserved so much more than than what you got. Also, I'm really grateful for that midwife who helped, you know, actually give you accurate information about what was happening and for your health. I mean, I, I think, you know, something that struck me so much from your story was that like at each turn, you, it was so hard to just get information to take care of yourself and your pregnancy um, and take care of your body. And Louisiana itself has been known to be one of the more dangerous places in the country for a woman to be pregnant. You just share that you think white women would have been treated differently. What has the reception been to using your voice and using your story in this way? What has it been like to to hear from folks? Yeah, it's just- shockingly, it was like outpouring of support. I was so nervous when that story dropped. Um, Being in a state like Louisiana, I was like, oh God, like, I don't know if, you know, this is the best move or if it's putting my family in like a weird spot, but best decision we ever made to just go forth and use our voices. Um, Folks have, I've had emails and phone calls from people I don't even know all over the country that are just like, thank you for shedding light on this. And then when you talk about community members, Kendall, like my own pastor reached out and was like, this was amazing. It was beautiful. It brought me to tears and it's something that we need to work on. So it's, it's almost like kind of, you know, lighting the fire under folks and helping them understand like, this is a serious issue. This could very well be me or my wife or my child. And so nothing but positive um, feedback has come back from this. And like folks that you would never imagine would want to even touch a legislative session or a policy like this are now like really, you know, reaching out to their elected officials, um, talking to other members of the community and trying to galvanize 
support to be able to move this forward and change this crazy law. And so um, I've just been nothing but blown away by the amount of folks that are just in support of being able to push back on the abortion ban in the state of Louisiana and understanding, like, as you stated, the maternal health rates are just outrageous. And they weren't aware of that before, which is pretty astonishing. I mean, that must feel like some level of purpose that you shared your story and that people are responding so deeply. I think that's really moving um, to hear from the folks that are closest to you that this mattered to them. And Dr. Lincoln, I want to turn to you because I have the luxury of watching your facial expression um, during some of what Caitlin shared. And I can tell that from your doctor perspective, you're just thinking... There are so many things that should have happened for Caitlin that didn't. So what can you tell us about how common miscarriages and what should have happened for Caitlin upon going to an emergency room or trying to even visit with her doctor? Right. What should have happened was the exact opposite of what happened. And again, Caitlin, so sorry and so appreciative and thankful that you put yourself out there to tell this story. And I remember when your story came out and I remember having to read it a few times because I just, not that I didn't believe you, I absolutely did. I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that this is how you were treated, which again, being a white female physician in a state where we have pretty good access to reproductive health care and I believe healthcare in general, I just to see that you were told these sorts of things, that you couldn't have a miscarriage that was confirmed, that you were sent out with prayers. And we love it when people send us out with good thoughts, but that doesn't replace actual medical care, which is what you were seeking. And I just remember even um, chatting about your story with a couple of my OBGYN friends, and the three of us were just livid and just thinking in this, you know, 2022 even in a post-Roe world, how can you deny the obvious, which is, so in these situations when you when you present with these symptoms and you have the falling pregnancy hormones, this isn't a pregnancy that is going to be viable and this requires care, whether it's expectant management, medicine or surgery, depending on what y'all come up with together and, and what's safe for you and you were denied that. What concerns me is that people who are anti-choice, who will hear stories like this, and you are far from alone, and will say, well, that's never what we meant to happen. They were incorrectly interpreting that law, and you shouldn't have gotten that. And that is the, the healthcare provider's fault and the hospital's fault. And what I want to say is, no, you all did make this these laws so scary and so terrible and so vague that you inadvertently had this chilling effect to healthcare providers who are paralyzed because their hospital's legal team are saying, we can't act. We've all heard stories of people who sat in the ER with ectopic pregnancies, pregnancies that will never result in a, in a live-born baby who had to be denied care for hours until they got the okay. And whether or not any of this should have happened, the bottom line is that it is happening because people are deathly afraid. And I remember reading your story, you said the reason you were told was because they were afraid. Um, because this was post-row changes. And then I saw the hospital statement that said, oh, that's actually not our policy. So here you were being told one thing and the organization was denying it. So you were being told that your what you were saying wasn't true. They were denying you care that is very much medically indicated in the first trimester to come in and get checked out. There's no reason you have to wait. So from top to bottom, left to right, you didn't get the care you needed. It's because I can say, and I will say, it was made worse because of racism within the system, laws that are harmful, and whether or not people say this is what the letter of the law was meant to interpret, it's what's happened and it is happening. And 
it is going to keep happening if we don't do something about it. I think also, you know, you mentioned the hospital came out saying that that was not our policy. Actually, Louisiana's ban in specific has a written exception for treating miscarriage. But the language is so vague that it puts such a heavy burden of proof on doctors. And I'm wondering, Dr. Lincoln, if you could just talk a little bit about the kind of precarity of the situation that doctors are being put in, because what what Kaylin experienced is is happening all across the country. It's not just in Louisiana. We're seeing this everywhere. Yeah. Um, to summarize it in complete layman's terms, it's a hot mess. It is just, it's just really horrible, not just from the, you know, what they're so scared. And I hear that people might think, well, just be that person who breaks that law. And I think that there will be a time and a place where legislatively we do have people who do these sorts of things in a very coordinated way. And you have to, because these are felonies. These are enormous penalties. These are people who have families and these are people who are literally scared for their lives, especially in places where we've seen what happens. We've seen the protests and the violence against people who provide abortion care has only escalated. Do I think that we need to continue to speak up in doctors? We need to absolutely have more of a role as activists and speak up and speak out because for so long we've not done that. We've hoped that the politicians and the lawmakers would protect us and they haven't. I really think though that that huge burden is on those of us who are not in those states who can speak up for them because they're too busy doing the work in their states where they've already got issues with access to care and then you add this on top of it. I will say as part of my nonprofit, Obstetricians for Reproductive Justice, we have found that a lot of the physicians in these states do not want to go on the record and share their stories. They are, for all the reasons that I've mentioned, they're scared. Yeah, scared. Their hospitals have said you absolutely cannot. And then you add in patients too, who might be afraid to share their stories. One of our big stories that came out um, was with a, a couple in Texas, in Austin, Texas, Amanda and Josh. And we were very lucky that they shared their story they're very well-to-do privileged white people who wanted to use that and said, listen, we have to speak up because if we are dealing with the issues we have, imagine the other people who don't have the access to healthcare and those sorts of things. And we got some pushback saying that we shouldn't be centering their voices. And my response is, these are the voices that we might hear first because these are the ones who feel safe to speak up and have the privilege and they have to. And we need to work alongside and make sure that we're protecting and elevating the stories and the people who can't speak up and we need to help them. And, and when it comes to, you alluded to this idea of how these laws are vague, I know a lot of our focus is going to be on trying to make them clearer so that healthcare providers will have more guidance. And a part of me loves that. And the other part of me thinks, well, obstetrics is just vague. There's no black and white. And our patients go from fine. Well, medicine is vague. Right. Right. And especially in our field where our patients tend to be very healthy and they compensate until the moment they fall off the cliff and they hemorrhage and it's 30 minutes from septic to dead. You can go from being, quote unquote, too stable, you know, maternal life is not at risk, to 30 minutes later in the ICU intubated and somebody's lost their uterus, which, you know, gets back to the discussion of how pro-life is this. So there's just, there's a lot, which is why I really want to emphasize with people listening that any ban harms people, but any sort of ban on any kind of healthcare harms people because there will always be the exceptions that we can't carve out. And then you get these extreme cases like Caitlin's where we just think, oh my goodness, this was never what should have happened even in some of these scenarios. But here's all the very complicated reasons as to why it did happen. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating 
to watch these things happen, I think, because we knew that some of these things would happen, you know? It's really hard to sit back and watch kind of what everyone had been concerned about really, really take root. And and in the lives of individuals like you, Caitlin, one thing I picked up, Caitlin, when you were talking that I think is really important to explicitly talk about, you had just celebrated your daughter's fourth birthday. I think there are a lot of people, a lot of anti-choice people that like to think that abortion or reproductive health care is only sought out by people who don't want to have children, right? And I think your story flies in the face of that narrative in a really important and impactful way. When everything happened with Dobbs and Roe was overturned, how did you feel about trying to get pregnant again or getting pregnant? What was that like to consider having another child, knowing that you already had a child as well? I think the interesting part about that, I kind of went back and forth with my sister who's in med school and she was just like, I know y'all want a second child, but we're in Louisiana. Are you crazy? And um, at the time, I guess it was like July, August. I was like, honestly, like it can't be that bad. Like, I don't think things are going to change that much. Obviously, I knew there would be some changes in protocol um, at the local hospitals in, in Louisiana, um, especially because our governor is just so pro-life in such a way um, that kind of gives a pass to all other elected officials that support um, abortion bans. Just kind of thought, you know, we'll just kind of take it bit by bit um, and you know, just kind of navigate this new normal post-row um, to be able to get the care we need. Um, in a state that is so strict about abortions already, um, pre-Roe versus Wade being overturned. Now that I, I'm thinking about, you know, having another baby and like, I still would really love to do that. It's just our state is not in a place that is very safe for women, especially women of color that are trying um, to bear children. And I think like a lot would have to change in order for us to kind of revisit that. Essentially, New Orleans has been very um, supportive of making sure that there are local measures to support women, um, even against our attorney general, um, who is very um, anti-choice in general. And so um, I guess like maybe if we decided to kind of go that route again and wanted to explore being able to get care in New Orleans, that is an option. But outside of that, I don't know, we would just have to be really strategic in how we would want to, you know, potentially get pregnant again. But for now, we're kind of just keeping that on ice. It reminds me of something that you said, Dr. Lincoln, how pro-life is that? If we're going to have policies that force people who are actually trying to have children feel unsafe doing so, then it's really the antithesis of what the laws claim to be about. Yeah, 100%. I, you know, I'm a mom and I've got two kids. And I think whether or not you choose to have kids um, or one or more kids, right, that's such a personal decision. That's something that you shouldn't have to worry about your zip code, and again, I'm not stupid to think that people didn't have to think this beforehand when it comes to accessing health care and poverty and the many problems we have in this country. It just seems to be so obvious right now, even more so, the disparities that people have to think, well, what state am I in? Or where do I want to go to college? Or where do I want to learn how to train to be an obstetrician? Or all these things, right? It's not very much about American or freedom, is it? It seems to be the opposite, which I find very confusing when it comes to the messaging. We're all about freedom at the ACLU. So we're really interested in taking that word back because I think you're right. It, it's not It's not freedom. It's not freedom to, to be encumbered by those issues. One thing that strikes me is people are existing in information deserts where they don't have access to 
medical care or medical information. It's really leaving patients in a lurch, not even just like physically, which we can clearly see, but also just from being able to make knowledgeable choices about their own healthcare, their own future, their family's future. I want to talk a little bit about the information wars that are happening right now, because I think that one of the things that both of you have in your background is we have a digital organizer and we have a community organizer. And I think organizing is such a key methodology in order to get information into the hands of people who need it. How do we get the right information into the hands of of people And so I guess I'll start with you, Caitlin, you know, from your perspective as a community organizer, how do we go about this from a tactic standpoint? You know, obviously you shared your story so beautifully and generously on a very national scale, but, you know, community organizing can be so effective just with people in a singular town just talking to one another. Yeah, I definitely think like stories resonate with folks. Um, that's something that we know um, in community organizing. If you're not, if you're not telling a story, you're not doing work. Um, and so essentially, definitely starts with a story, but also starts with like I'm finding that like bringing folks in a room together and like having conversations that are actually in person makes a big difference. And so, like I kind of alluded to, like my pastor reaching out to me. Like typically, that's on a topic he would touch. And so essentially, and I think I've um, said this like to a a class that I was teaching last semester at Southern, essentially what I'm finding really works is like when you kind of have just open dialogue around like abortion care, reproductive justice, asking folks straight up, what does that mean to you? And you get to like this root, um, just this like miss this preconceived notion of this idea that like abortion care is just like like we said, someone who doesn't want their children or doesn't want kids in general, or someone who just, you know, uses it as birth control, because we hear that all the time, that it's just like a a irresponsible way to kind of take care of your body. Essentially, when you kind of pull back some of those misconceptions and like give real dialogue, bring someone in the room like a Dr. Jen and help folks understand that like, no, these are all the different facets of medical care, of, um, of fundamental rights. It changes the narrative. I mean, it brings a little bit more folks into this space I do know I organize a lot of faith leaders in general, and essentially there are a host of folks just trying to glob into this and trying to understand it from a holistic standpoint. Like I keep saying, like kind of gearing up for this next session, which we know is going to be so important in our state and helping kind of um, unmuddy the waters, if you will. What's really going to make an impact is the conversations that have happened over the last six, seven months, um, talking about the impacts of women of color, of marginalized communities, um, of undocumented folks, et cetera, in the state of Louisiana that are experiencing this in a negative way or the backlash of Roe versus Wade being overturned in a negative way. And so, um, no. <laughs> okay, I'll be right out, okay? That was awesome. But uh, it's those one-on-one conversations when you get folks into the room and then they reach out to 10 more and they reach out to 10 more and before you know it, you're having a town hall meeting. Um, and I, I'll just reiterate that in person that we were kind of missing during COVID. Um, and thanks to folks like Dr. Jen, who are kind of like doing a great job of like making us all feel like we're in community together and like educating us from a digital space. And then we take that info and bring it to the rooms. It really does make a difference and brings more folks into the fold to advocate on this. I want to follow up on something that you said. Um, you know, you've spoken today a little bit about faith being really important to you. I know that you've done a lot of faith organizing in Louisiana. 
I think it's tough because religion has been used as a weapon here. And I think in a really unfair way, and it doesn't necessarily uh, reflect how all people of faith, of a specific faith, feel about um, a certain issue. How does your faith guide your activism for equity and justice? And how does it intersect with your beliefs about reproductive health care? One thing that I find, especially with speaking with folks of faith, if you really get them behind, you know, just the two of y'all behind closed doors, having conversation, not in front of a mic, not in front of a congregation. The first thing that folks of faith, especially faith leaders say is like, oh, that's atrocious. That's wild to tell a woman what to do with her body. But, you know, I can't really say that, you know, to my congregation. I really can't say that on record, but, you know, I'll have this conversation with Caitlin. And what's so astonishing to me about that is you have to ask yourself how many people are out there like that, that, you know, ascribe to being Christians or, you know, whatever religion and have that same worldview of like, we know that that's not right. We know that that, you know, forcing a woman to, to have a baby or to conceive or, you know, when you bring into the fact around rape and incest, oh, that's just awful. And so really kind of mobilizing folks from this place of like fear of like organizing and using their voice to a place that is really doing what I think is the Lord's work, which is, you know, using their voice and their position and their platform to be able to make a difference in the folks of not just their congregation, but their community and community at large. And so for me, it intersects a lot. Like I do, you know, as a woman of faith, I do consider myself um, as, you know, just like leaning in on, on still what the Lord wants me to do and like kind of what, you know, where he has me in this moment right now. I think he has me working on this um, and certainly feel, you know, like I should be going in this direction in terms of working on reproductive justice, especially for women of color in the state of Louisiana um, and helping kind of guide that legislation, whatever that may look like. And essentially, last thing I'll say on that is not just faith leaders, but especially just folks of faith in general, I know are looking for ways to be able to plug into the work and ways to be able to make an impact. And they're just kind of looking for ways to show up. And I think this moment that's being presented to us is is giving us an opportunity to be able to do that. Thank you so much for that. You know, I know from my own town and my own religious upbringing and my own, you know, faith background, you know, that similar experience that you've had has really rung true for me too. I think it's a really important thing to be a person of faith talking about these issues because it does help kind of take back some of the the power and the narrative that has been set largely unfairly and largely by people that don't necessarily have our interests in mind. Dr. Lincoln, I want to turn to you about digital organizing. You have grown a sizable audience on TikTok. Um, I remember that is first how I met you was on my phone, um, which is very cool. Uh, And you use your training and practices in OBGYN to provide some common sense reproductive healthcare information, sex health information. Uh, What made you start that? And have you been surprised by what people don't know? I grew up um, going to Catholic schools all my life, all girls Catholic high school, where abstinence-only education was what we got. And just like Caitlin said, this isn't about that religion. It's about just the facts of what we were taught, or, or more importantly, what we weren't taught. So I know how I went out into the world, very unprepared, and I know that I'm far from alone. And so I found, while I absolutely love my work in person in the hospital, 
the ability to reach so many more people and to see the gaps that are out there that I was seeing in my own patients who just didn't understand how their bodies worked, not because they're not smart, but because they weren't given the tools. And then you add in so much misinformation and disinformation that's out there on social media, I decided to jump on. And and it's been wonderful to be able to educate and to see tangible evidence of people taking content that I've created or other people have created that's wonderful and amplifying and seeing that they've felt empowered to make choices. And in terms of seeing how that's now transformed into this digital organizing, it's been really wonderful to be able to have these connections in these communities especially in a world right now where you feel so isolated or you feel like helpless sometimes. And especially folks who are in areas where they're just not surrounded by like-minded people like I get to be. Um, my good friend, Dr. Heather Grabunda, an OBGYN in New York, she says, you know, we can wear our abortion t-shirts in New York and Portland and we get high fives. And if you do that in, in Texas or Alabama, it's going to be a different vibe. But I think so much of what I try to prioritize when it comes to digital organizing and using my platform and my voice is really going back to deciding what we're going to talk about and what I'm not going to talk about is trying to convince you personally about why you should agree with abortion. What we're really hoping for here is that people respect privacy and choice. And if we sit here and just pretend this is an abortion issue, we're going to not get anywhere. This is a reproductive justice issue. This is a privacy issue. This is access to fair health care issue. And I've found that when we frame it that way, and I don't spend my time arguing about when life begins because I, I don't care what you believe. I, I support you and what you believe for you. But this idea that as Americans, our country was founded on the ability to have our freedoms and make these choices for ourselves, that's where we gain traction. And we saw that work in Texas and we're seeing that work elsewhere. And the vast majority of Americans are not as polarized as the very verbal few who have made these laws and, and have gotten us to where we are. Keelan, you get the last word here. We're honoring the 50th anniversary of Roe, otherwise known as the anniversary that isn't or wasn't or won't be. What do you want people to take away from our conversation, from your story, from your experience, and from your work? What do you want to leave people with? Yeah, I want to leave folks with, there's a plethora of ways for you to be able to plug in and do work on this. Um, This is an issue that impacts everyone, even if you think it doesn't. Um, learn from me, learn from my husband. It certainly does. And, and you don't need a firsthand experience just knowing that you can prevent this from happening to a family member, someone you don't know, a stranger, community member, et cetera. Like this is a real issue and it's not going to go anywhere unless all of us do the work to be able to make sure that we can make real change at our legislative level or at the federal level, et cetera. And so this next year is going to be crucial. Um, obviously, it's New Year, um, real opportunity to be able to educate yourself right now. Go to and educate yourself, you know, via Dr. Jen's um, Instagram and TikTok. Those are helpful resources to be able to understand what exactly is going on and why this is such a big deal. And then most importantly, get in touch with your local organization that's doing the work around this, doing the work around reproductive justice, um, making sure that your voice is heard, making sure that you've got the tools and resources to be able to do this work. That was excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of you for joining. Um, It's been a pleasure to share time with you all. And I'm just so in awe of the work that you are both doing. We're really grateful that we have people like you out, out here fighting. Thanks for having us. And thank you, Caitlin. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay kind.